Hi everybody, this is Dr. Kelly, and we're going to be finishing up uh, this week's uh, lectures with a little bit on foreign policy changes, foreign policy changes. Uh, last lecture I talked about the new racial order, that's more domestic, this one's more international, more foreign policy. Now the United States, you need to realize in this time period, it's not the like A-tier country that it is now, it's not the most powerful country in the world, and by and large it's not too interested in foreign affairs. I wouldn't say it's not interested. It's it's not really focusing that much on foreign affairs. Uh, when it came to pretty much the old role of U.S. foreign policy, uh, the main underlying ideology behind it was basically ensuring markets and opportunity. Uh, the United States wanted not to really make anybody mad. They wanted to be able to sell their goods pretty much wherever they wanted to. Uh, three kind of uh, components to it, whenever we get down to it. Uh, the big one, number one, is to stay out of European affairs. Uh, whenever George Washington gave his farewell address as president, he charged the American population with doing two things. Number one, don't have political parties. And number two, stay out of Europe's affairs. Now, um, the Americans, they, it's pretty shortly after Washington leaves that uh, there's political parties. But for most of America's history up to this time period, they're not doing too much when it comes to European affairs. They're not really entering into alliances with Europe. They're not really, you know, getting involved too, too much with the, you know, the Game of Thrones, if you will, about what's going on, who's doing what in Europe. European countries are always fighting each other. Uh, the U.S. is really keen on staying out of that. That's about to change, especially once we get to World War I, but the U.S. was pretty much stay out of, of European affairs. Now, uh, to be honest, for part two, I mean, it wasn't like they were completely out of European affairs, mainly European affairs on the continent. Because the U.S. is mainly focusing upon spreading within its own borders. Uh, sorry, spreading within its own borders. Going from sea to shining sea, well, Atlantic to Pacific. Because a lot of these territories they're coming into have European claims. And of course, they're dealing with Spain when it comes to places like Mexico. But you're also dealing with England and stuff when you talk about the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Russia, they're involved with Russia too when you're talking about Alaska. All these areas are definitely talking to European countries in some form or fashion. Uh, there is this concept called Manifest Destiny, which you've probably heard of before. It's the idea that, like, America was mandated by God or something uh, to go from sea to shining sea, you know, go from the Atlantic to the Pacific. They can spread and grow wherever they want. And a third part of the American foreign affairs, if they had them, and this one's a lot more ethereal, but it's the idea that they wanted to export democracy and capitalism. Like, this idea that America was supposed to be the shining city on the hill, and whenever we do get involved with a foreign country, we should export democracy and also capitalism. Uh, this also helps with uh, building up a market. Now, if you go over one slide, you're going to see the map of America's um, influence spreading, particularly in the Pacific, uh, kind of in this time period. I mean, I guess early on we do get places like Howland Island and Baker Island. But it's mainly around the turn of the century where the United States really starts taking a lot of territory. Really starts taking a lot more territory, a lot more important territory. And you can also see, if you go to the next time, the amount of business interests that are being used in foreign investments in this time period. You know, if you go from, uh, you know, 1869, right after the Civil War, to 1897, I mean, you know, it goes up about 700 million. But my, look how much it goes up uh, after that. You know, it goes up into from 700 million to 2.5 billion. That's a... Uh, Multiple times larger, uh, much, much larger. 
Actually, that's investments in millions. So that's getting into like, oh God, like trillions. Of, no, no, it's not trillions because you can see it's investment in millions. So about $2.5 billion in 1908 money. Um, that's about, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars in today money. And granted, today we spend a lot more on foreign investments. So you can tell the U.S. is doing a lot more commercial investments in this time period. Now, one of the reasons that this kind of changes is this new activism, due in large part to the Spanish-American War. Uh, the Spanish-American War is almost like America's coming-out party on the, uh, Amer- of the world stage. It's the idea that America is now going to be more involved in world affairs. Because, you know, in fighting Spain, uh, Spain is a country in this time period that isn't the most powerful. It's definitely in decline, but it's still an old European power. It still has the name. Uh, just imagine, I'm actually trying to think of an equivalent, but like maybe a, a sports team or a, or a company that like isn't as powerful as it once was, but it still has that name recognition. Uh, maybe something like how Sears used to be. You know, Sears used to be the biggest company in the world. Now it's definitely on the decline, but it still has a name. It still has a name. It still has a lot of name recognition. Now, the reason why the United States go to war has a lot to do with Cuba. If you go over one slide, uh, the U.S. had been interested in Cuba for a very, very long time. Uh, Cuba, you know, the island of Cuba is the largest island in the Caribbean. It's had a lot of investment, a lot of uh, agriculture for a long time. Very large island, very uh, prosperous island, particularly in terms of sugarcane. And actually, you know, as early as 1854, the U.S. was trying to buy Cuba from Spain. Uh, the main interest in Cuba actually comes from the South. Uh, actually, even during the Confederacy, the Confederates are talking about maybe buying Cuba once the war's over. They, they never have the chance because they get their butt kicked quite a bit. But there's this idea that Cuba could be a very good territory for the United States, very prosperous, particularly in sugarcane. Uh, a lot of slaveholders think that it could be a good place for slavery to expand to. Absolutely. Lots of interest. Now, in time, the Cubans are also not that keen on the Spanish. Remember, Spain controls Cuba. Spain's power is on the wane. And you do have a series of Cuban rebellions. Uh, two Cuban rebellions. Uh, there's two big main ones, 1868 and 1878. Uh, they are not overly successful. They, they fail uh, triumphantly. But uh, there was some sympathy for the Cuban rebels. Um, the idea that the United States, you know, they too were once a you know, um, a territory ruled by a foreign European power that uh, was not taking its best interests at heart. Uh, there was definitely a sympathy, definitely some overlap that maybe the Cubans could be like Americans. Uh, however, some, if you go over one side, you'll see that some business people are not keen on this, mainly because they had already made agreements with Spain uh, for different companies. You know, if a, co- if a country, if a territory loses its host country, a lot of times the old business arrangements are null and void. And a lot of American investment is in Cuba, particularly for things like sugarcane. You know, uh, they have these sugarcane plantations. Well, not even plantations, sugarcane. Corporate farms that don't quite have slavery, but they don't not not have slave labor, <laughs> shall we say. And so there are some business people who really want Spain to stay in control in Cuba, mainly to so they can protect their investment. However, other uh, Americans are very keen on helping the Cuban people. They say we should help free them, just like, you know, we got free from England back in the day. Uh, The term you hear thrown around a lot is Cuba Libre. If you know Spanish, it just means free Cuba. Basically, you know, let it free from Spain, let it become just like the United States and growing up. 
Now, a lot of this war is spurred along by yellow journalism. Uh, yellow journalism, if you hear, it's like the BuzzFeed or, you know, the, the junkier ant post on Facebook of the day. It's sensationalized news, uh, drawn to bring in the readers by exaggerating. Just think of, like, every clickbait, you know, headline you ever saw. Like, you know, five reasons, number four will shock you. That sort of thing. Uh, the name actually comes from a cartoon character called the Yellow Kid. Uh, I don't have any pictures of the Yellow Kid. Eh, you can look them up. Uh, the two big leaders of this are mainly Hearst and Pulitzer. Uh, Hearst does the journal. Pulitzer does the world. Uh, it's ironic that both those names are highly respected in journalism because at the time they were very, very uh, sensationalist, uh, very exaggeratory of it. And they really publish articles to increase war forever against Spain. They really are publishing stuff mainly to make the Spanish look very villainized within the United States. Uh, there's a famous quote attributed to one of them, uh, basically telling everybody, telling the, you know, the American military, uh, you know, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. Basically, get, get us pictures of the stuff going on in Cuba, and basically I will whip up public support uh, to get whatever you want. And particularly, they're, they're uh, targeting the guy kind of in charge of Cuba for Spain, General Weilers, uh, some of his camps. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, go over one slide, you'll see Pulitzer and Hertz. You know, you'll publish pictures, I'll publish the war. Uh, these are some pictures of Valenier Weiler's uh, reconcentration camps. Um, he basically said that these are prisoners, these are dissidents in Cuba. You can see how much they're starving. I mean, look how that guy's ribs are poking out. That's kind of disturbing. Uh, these are sensationalized pictures. These are of Cuban people. However, it's actually of a hospital. It's not even of a concentration camp. But they're making it look like, you know, Weiler is starving people down in Cuba. Um, to be fair, Weiler is, has have camps where he is jailing political dissidents, uh, not quite to this level of cruelty. This goes on a bit later. Uh, this goes on a little bit uh, later because William McKinley, who's president of this time period, remember this is thematic, not chronological, but William McKinley, uh, he's really trying to avoid a war with Spain using diplomacy. Uh, he's like, you know what, I'd rather not have a war. Very cool. You know, he's like, maybe we shouldn't have a war. War's not in our best interest. Uh, for this point, General Weiler does modify the concentrate policies. He's like, hey, we're not going to have these concentration camps, even though those pictures were dubious. Uh, we'll give the Cubans more free rule, that sort of thing. And then we have a letter between a Spanish diplomat and basically uh, the King of Spain, basically talking about William McKinley. Uh, Delone was the name of the, the diplomat. And basically in this letter, and this is one of these things we get into translation, because basically... In the letter, he's telling the King of Spain, hey, um, look, we don't think President uh, McKinley is a very, you know, he's not somebody who's really that interested in war. He, he's definitely interested in peace. You know, he's not going to press us for war. I don't think he's actually going to invade us. And he's writing this in Spanish. And so basically this leaks to Hertz and, uh, and Pulitzer, and they get their own translators to kind of mistranslate it or, or translate it a different way where basically he's saying, hey, I think William McKinley is weak. Now, there's a huge difference between I don't think this person wants to fight versus I think this person's a wimp. Does that make sense? Like, in the original letter, it doesn't really say anything about, you know, William McKinley being, a, you know, a sissy or a wimp. It just says, I don't think he's too keen on fighting. But he can misconstrue the translation to make it seem like he's weak. This really increases anti-Spanish feelings. So even before everything happens, like oh, uh, about a week or so before uh, the big boom happens, as we're about to find out, uh, things are already being leaked to the media that makes you know makes Spain not you know the happiest 
uh, person for uh, the general United States population. This is about to go really more on the night of April 15th in Havana Harbor. Uh, the USS Maine is a is an American Navy ship. It is in Havana Harbor in Cuba, uh, theoretically as a peacekeeping measure. Uh, theoretically, the ship is going to be there. It's just you know minding its own business. Uh, definitely an aggressive action, if you will. Um, you know, just like a hey, you know, just let you make sure that you don't get too crazy up there, Spain, because we have a warship. Basically, that night the ship blew up. Uh, the ship blew up. We don't know exactly why it blew up. It, it did. Uh, more than likely, it was because of an engine failure or a boiler exploded. Uh, it kills about 260 people. It kills about 260 people. 260 sailors die. Uh, like I said, nobody really knows how it happened or what happened to it. Uh, what does happen is that basically the newspapers kind of take this. This just seems like, oh my gosh, now we can get our war. Uh, Spain gets heavily done by the media. They heavily blame Spain and the media. Very much yellow journalism. I, I love the headline of Hertz's paper. You have it right there. Uh, the warship Maine was split in two by an enemy secret infernal machine. Okay. The idea of an infernal machine. Like, you know what infernal means? It means, like, hell. So, like, a machine powered by hellfire split our, our boat in two. Oh, it's just wonderful exaggeration. Uh, and this really increases the war forever against Spain. This idea that, hey... You know, Spain attacked us. Spain, you know, did our did us wrong in this time period. Uh, Spain hurt us. We should go with this. Uh, the slogan that becomes really popular around the United States is "Remember the Maine and the hell with Spain." But remember the Maine. Basically, like, hey, you know, don't don't let us be appeased into like not fighting because of what our diplomats say. They killed 260 American lives. They should pay. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see all these buttons. Like, remember the Maine. There's a picture of the Maine right there. Uh, I love that little political cartoon. Not that I love like dehumanizing people, but look, like it's like, oh, that's the Spain being characterized there as a like a, a monkey person or a gorilla of some sorts. You know, these murder these Spani uh, murdered these American sailors by Spain. See a uh, funeral for the ma main victims in Havana right there. So even though Cuba's giving them one, uh, the Cuban people kind of make this a thing like, hey, save us from Spain. Uh, this starts the war. It's called A Splendid Little War by Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, yeah, I should talk to you about what Teddy Roosevelt does real quick. Uh, it's a very, very short war. It only takes like a couple weeks. Uh, one person who really, really gets involved with it is Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, in this time period, he is an undersecretary of the Navy. Uh, he's not vice president yet. He will become vice president after the popularity of this. Uh, basically, he decides, you know what? I'm going to make up my own military unit. Gonna make up my own military unit of like misfits of just basically like cowboys and old prospectors and some Native American fighters and this whole thing. He calls them the Rough Riders. He takes the name Rough Riders from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. This idea that this this is just like media gold. Like you know they they have reporters with them who do all sorts of things. You know they write stories about you know this this. Uh, you know, this government official who soloed his country, he's willing to fight. You know, he volunteers for military service. Whole shtick. You can just imagine. I mean, we talked about how fun Teddy Roosevelt is. and We're going to talk more about how fun Teddy Roosevelt is. So, like, of course you can imagine this being just media gold. This, this will sell papers. You know, the Rough Riders will go into town. They have all sorts of, you know, crazy adventures. And you exaggerate elements of their character. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt himself is just a pure character. Gets super popular. Uh, like I said, they don't get involved in too, too much. Probably their, their crowning achievement. Uh, they don't get involved in too much because the war's very short. Uh, their crowning achievement is probably the Battle of San Juan Hill. 
which is in Havana. Basically, they charge up the hill of San Juan to you know, take out the artillery that the Spanish have up there. Uh, fun fact, uh, two black units had pretty much already taken the flak, and that would be the uh, 10th, Negro, 10th Negro Cavalry and the 10th Negro Infantry, the, the 5th and the 10th, actually were the ones who took the flank. And um, even, even though Teddy Roosevelt gave them their props, uh, if you notice that picture, the black and white picture, uh, the newspaper cut out the black soldiers. If you see the wide lens of this picture, you're going to see the black, the members of the 10th and the 5th on either side of them. However, the newspaper cut it out, maybe it seems just like Teddy Roosevelt's thing. Uh, like I said, the fighting in Cuba is very quick. Probably the fighting that's more important and better for the U.S. as a whole is in the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines is an island possession right off the coast of China that Spain has had for quite a while. Uh, in the Philippines, it's pretty much one great battle, uh, the Battle of uh, Manila Bay. Uh, Manila is the capital of the Philippines. Basically, Admiral Dewey, as you see there with his awesome white mustache, basically destroys the Spanish fleet. Pretty much destroys the Spanish fleet, and in one battle, takes out the Spanish fleet and is able to get the Philippines. So by the time the war ends, the United States, if you go over one slide, the United States gets territory not only in the Pacific, but they also get territory, sorry, they don't also get territory in the Caribbean, there we go, but they also get territory in the Pacific. Now there is a bit of a controversy about what to do with all this territory. Should we keep Cuba? There's definitely talk about making Cuba a state. Um, later on, when we get into like the Cold War and stuff, it might have been better for the U.S. And, you know, if we had made Cuba a state. However, a lot of people said that it was going to be very disingenuous. You know, we talked all about Cuba Libre. You know, it said that they shouldn't be controlled by a foreign possession. Uh, they shouldn't be a possession of a foreign power. So ultimately, the U.S. does give Cuba back to the Cubans, but but with major concessions, particularly where it comes to business, uh, industry. Uh, basically, these business interests, these sugar, plane company, sugar cane companies, uh, get to do pretty much whatever they want to do in Cuba uh, that you know, the Cuban government cannot resist. And this is going to become a problem 50 years later, whenever Cuba uh, goes communist because of, well, later on it's Batista, but who's in charge, but... Uh, Cuba was not that independent when it's independent. A lot of it was controlled by U.S. business interest. If you go over more, you know, with the end of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. is now in a new role when it comes to colonialism. Uh, the U.S. is now a colonial power because we have two major possessions. Um, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is something that the Spanish also give over in the, uh, in, in the Caribbean. Uh, the U.S. takes it over pretty quick. I mean, there was some hand-wringing about taking Cuba. There's no hand-wringing about Puerto Rico. Uh, the U.S. wants Puerto Rico. The U.S. gets Puerto Rico. That's not that much of an issue. Uh, still to this day, Puerto Rico is a U.S. possession. Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Uh, that's not too big of a controversy. It's so close, we can claim Monroe Doctrine or later on the Truman, um, sorry, the Roosevelt Colliery as to why we are taking over the possession of Puerto Rico. However, the Philippines are a bit of a different story. Um, if you look at a map, you'll see the Philippines are right next to China, which is not really in our sphere of influence. Um, we're not close to the Philippines, like at all. It's like literally halfway across the world from us. The Pacific Ocean is massive. And we don't have that long of a history there. Uh, so the, the, there is talk about, is taking the Philippines somewhat hypocritical? Um... Ultimately, the U.S. decides we need to keep it, though, because of trade. 
there are two main arguments as to why the U.S. needs to take over the Philippines. The first is a general argument that the Filipinos are not ready to govern themselves. We have to teach them how to do this. Uh, that doesn't go over too well. That really ends up in a uh, Filipino uprising. There's definitely a guerrilla war that goes on there for a while. Uh, the main reason, though, why we keep the Philippines is China. Uh, China is viewed as the ultimate trade goal. There's a lot of wealth in China. There's a lot of trade opportunities in China. There's a lot of people in China, which means a lot of potential customers in China. And the U.S. is very keen on having trade with China. And basically, by having the Philippines, they can have an island base for refueling, but also have a station that we can be trading in China. So although America is a colonial power, it's a much smaller power than it is to uh, European contemporaries. The U.S. is power, but it mainly has the colonies of uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Now, what happens here is pretty interesting because China has a very long history. Uh, that's understatement of the year. Uh, China has an incredibly long history, thousands upon thousands of years of dynasties and stuff. Uh, however, we're talking this time period, you know, turn of the century, late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, China is very, very in political turmoil. I mentioned last lecture about the Chinese coming over because of political turmoil. This is political turmoil. Um, it's really trying to resist westernization. It's really trying to resist colonization, particularly imperialism. Uh, England and other territories are really trying to open up China. Uh, you have things like the Opium Wars, where pretty much England literally acts like a drug dealer trying to sell drugs in China. Uh, what ends up happening is pretty much China does not allow Europeans on the interior of country of China. Uh, it will allow them on like various ports, like Hong Kong. That's probably the best example. Hong Kong is a port city in China, pretty much leased to the English. The English have full control over Hong Kong in this time period. It's only relatively recently that uh, the English give back Hong Kong to the Chinese. It's still a big issue if you pay attention to politics. But basically, you know, they have autonomy. And the deal is the Chinese do not want Europeans in the interior of China. It's pretty much a closed-off society. If you, if you look, if you go over one, you'll see the, the picture of the open door. Well, this time period of China is a closed door. And America wants to open China up, mainly for trade, but also for religious reasons. Um, America believes that it has, well, a lot of Americans believe that they have an uh, evangelical mission. You know, they need to go evangelize, they need to make new mission work in China. And although there are plenty of churches in the port cities in China, the interior of China is very much closed off to outsiders. And so basically the U.S. implements what's called the open-door policy, all right? Pretty much telling China, in no uncertain, kind of threatening words, hey, let's open you up. They kind of force the emperor into doing some not-so-great deals. Remember, China is going through some weakness in this time period. They've already lost some wars to you know, England, they're not too keen about having Europeans come in, but they feel too weak, and they're like, maybe we can slow things down. So basically, the U.S. gets the open-door policy, which allows for trading to happen in more places in China, but also for missionaries to go pretty much anywhere they want in China, particularly into the interior of China. And that's where it gets a little sticky. Because most Chinese people in this time period Never really seen a European person before. They, they know the emperor is weak. They know China is losing influence. But they don't really know any European people because China has been so insulated and they've been so resistant 
to letting um, Europeans in. Now, China actually does have a very long history with Christianity. Like, we're talking back to the time of the disciples. Well, not that old, but up there. Like, Nostra Christians and stuff been in China for a very long time. Uh, for instance, Genghis Khan, like, he's not Chinese, he's Mongolian, but his mother was a Christian. Uh, there, were, there were sects of Christianity uh, in that time period. And if we're talking about the west of China, there are various Christian ethnic minorities there. Um, so when these missionaries go there, it's not like the Chinese are necessarily against Christianity per se, but they are very much against Western influence. And a lot of resentment starts growing up, popping up against the Europeans, against Western influence, once this open door gets into place. Now what ends up happening is a new society comes up. Uh, the Societists of the Righteous Harmonious Fist, or the Righteous and Harmonious Fist Society, uh, just call them the Boxers, that's what the Westerners call them. And it's very much in the same vein as the Ghost Dance. It's almost identical to the Ghost Dance in a lot of ways. Uh, they're resisting encroachment from other people. Uh, they get their name Boxers because they start out doing these martial arts demonstrations, Basically, they would go to towns, try to, you know, encourage the people, like, hey, watch this martial arts demonstration. It's going to show our, our strength of character, our, our chi, whatever you want to call it, like our, our, our spiritual connection to the old Chinese ancestors that's going to empower us, and it's going to give us the strength to fight off the Europeans, to fight off the white people. You know, once again, the idea of celestial garments that protect against bullets, uh, you know, the idea that you could train yourself if you tap into the ancestral spirits, and they'll give you the spirits of China, the things that kept China safe for so, 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 so long. Now, this starts to get sensationalized, because remember, this starts out as, as anti-Western resentment, not necessarily anti-Christian. But, while this is growing, this is mainly growing in very insulated, non-port towns in China. You know, very much in the countryside, very much places that hears about the incursion of Westerners, but doesn't see it too much. And a lot of these places, the first Westerner they ever meet or see is a Christian missionary. Now remember, theoretically, China doesn't have a problem with Christians. They have a very long history with Christians. But they do have a problem with Westerners. So what happens is there's some violence against Westerners. But the violence they commit, West, uh, the violence they commit, ah, the people they commit the violence against the Westerners they commit the violence against, there we go, are primarily missionaries. This gets construed in the media as they're attacking Christians. They're attacking Christians. They're attacking people because of their faith. This is persecution, Book of Revelation type of stuff. Now, as I said, are they attacking Christians? They are, primarily because they're Western. They're primarily doing the missionaries because they're Western. Not because they're Christian. Now in time, the boxers get even bigger. They start growing in influence. They start having it in the cities. They even go to Beijing, where the emperor is, and they swear allegiance to the emperor, which scares the cryptic crap out of the emperor. He's like, oh God, oh God, the Westerners are going to hear about this, and then they're going to come down hard against me. Remember, the emperor has been doing all this stuff in China, giving the Westerners you know, a lot of power and territory, mainly so the Westerners don't come in and overwhelm him. But now that the boxers have come in, this is where the Boxer Rebellion really gets into play. You can see the picture there. Uh, basically, the boxers take over the diplomatic quarter of Beijing. That's where all the ambassadors and stuff are. Uh, theoretically, uh, ambassadors and diplomats have immunity. They're not supposed to be messed with. It's theoretically sovereign soil. However, the boxers come over. They start to try to purge the diplomatic quarter. A siege begins. It lasts for quite a while. 
No news comes out for several days. Uh, once it does come out, uh, it turns out that eh, not too much happened, but still there's this idea that there's this, you know, this foreign army, every racist stereotype you can think of, uh, basically fighting against uh, Christians or the West, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this ends up ultimately with eight nations coming together, the eight-nation army coming together, uh, the eight great Western powers sending military. Um, America's part of it. So is like England. Germany sends some. Uh, ironically, the Western power that brings the most is Japan. Now, this is where it gets interesting because Japan considers itself a Western power. Japan says we're the most uh, advanced of the Asian countries, we're the most industrial of the Western countries. Uh, I've even read some newspapers of the time period, some newspaper editorials, that claim that Japan is the whitest of the Asian countries. They use the term white, which is interesting. This idea of the purity of the Japanese people, whiteness of the Japanese people. Basically, Japan's like, hey, we're going to be sending in the most troops for this. And they do. Uh, they send in the bulk of the uh, troops for this rebellion. Ultimately, this does get put down. The Boxer Rebellion does get put down. A lot of the boxers are uh, executed. And basically, after this point, um, China's very weak. China is very weak. It's not the major power it was. You do have an emperor. He's more of a just a, a, a puppet, more of a figurehead. Um, later on, I mean, once we get into World War II, it's probably the last time we're going to talk about China until we get into World War II. Uh, China does have a couple series of wars with uh, Russia in this time period. Sorry, Japan has some series of wars with Russia in this time period over China. Long story. Uh, just so by the time we get to World War II and Chiang Kai-shek, and then later on with Chairman Mao, uh, China goes through 50 years of like political upheaval, and that's why you know a lot of them were going to the United States in the first place. I, I can't iterate this enough, though. At the end of this, all this, though, the United States is not a super powerful nation, very much a second or third tier nation. Um, you know, it, it's not a Division One college program. It's like, uh, you know, Division Two or Division Three. Like, you know, it's it's a good it's a good program. You know, they'll play on ESPN too, but they're not like going to be under the Sugar Bowl or anything. Europe is way more dominant. It's going to change, but that's mainly after World War One and particularly after World War Two. Now, the final thing the U.S. really gets in, oh yeah, the Great White Fleet. Uh, that, that's actually under President Roosevelt. I'll just tell you real quick. Uh, basically, that's how the U.S. shows its power, is they build this giant Navy fleet of, like, white ships, basically to go around the world on a, quote-unquote, goodwill mission, basically showing America's uh, power and show that we could be a naval power, and basically trade with us. Now, Latin America, some things do change in Latin America. A big part of that is the Panama Canal. Um, the Panama Canal is built in Panama. Um, the idea of having a canal that connects the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean around Central America has been around for a very long time. Uh, going around South America takes a super long time if you're doing any sort of trade. I remember even at this time, if you want to like ship a bulk amount of goods from like California to New York, it's a lot faster and cheaper to do it via boat. Um, it's even safer to go around South America than you know, then go across the country. However, the U.S. is keenly, keenly, keenly interested in making a canal around there. And the initial canal is actually going to be in Nicaragua. Uh, the Nicaraguans are the ones in control of Panama. And we're dealing with the Nicaraguan government. Uh, the Nicaraguan government wants a lot of money for it. And so pretty much we tell the Panamanians, who are theoretically a colony of uh, Nicaragua, they're like, hey, Panama, um, if y'all, if you promise 
that we can build a canal in, in your country for like very low rates. We'll help you rebel against the Nicaraguans and become an independent country. And that's pretty much exactly what happens. Uh, with U.S. support, Panama declares independence against Nicaragua. Uh, the U.S. helps them out, get their independence. Almost immediately, the newly freed Panamanian government uh, sets up a deal that basically Americans can build the Panama Canal in Panama super, super cheap. And it takes many years. It's an engineering marvel. A lot of people die making it, mainly because of yellow fever, malaria. A lot of the workers die. It's a giant ditch. It goes for miles, you know, from the Atlantic to the, to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, this is something America controls and owns in this time period. Uh, it's only later on that America gives that territory back to the Panamanians. Actually, in the 1970s, it's when it happens. But, like, for the longest time, the Panama Canal Zone is considered American territory. Uh, for instance, John McCain. Uh, John McCain, he ran for president, died not that long ago. He was born in the Panama Canal Zone, but that was considered American territory, so he was able to run for president. Generally, to run for president, you have to be born from the United States. Now, the Panama Canal, that whole thing that we're, you know, we feel the right that we can interfere in the affairs of foreign countries within Central and South America, is of a part of a larger thing called the Roosevelt Colliery. Uh, it's part of the Monroe Doctrine, all right? The Monroe Doctrine is basically something that, you know, James Monroe said when he was president, that Europe needs to stay out of the Western Hemisphere. Like, Europe, the affairs of the Western Hemisphere are none of your own. You have no right to interfere in anything we do. Now, the Roosevelt Colliery is an extension of that, which basically says, except we can do whatever we want in Central and South America. The United States, unlike Europe, has the right to interfere anytime we want to in Central or South America. And Teddy Roosevelt's very big on that. And the way he does this is what he calls big stick diplomacy. Big stick diplomacy. That's part of the Great White Fleet as well. Uh, President Roosevelt says, like, there's this idiom, speak softly and carry a big stick. Uh, the big stick being America's military. The big stick being America's, like, business interests and also the military. The idea that America is not going to make any overt threats to these countries, but, you know, the Great White Fleet's going to come by, you know, 20 large warships painted white, just so you know, you know, I'm not saying nothing, just do it. It'd be like if I asked you, hey guys, do your homework, and I pull out a bazooka. Like, you know, I've got this giant paint tank buster here, just hanging on to it, you know. I'm not saying nothing, I'm just saying do your homework while I'm holding a bazooka. That's pretty much what Roosevelt's thing was. Um, part of the Roosevelt Colliery, it's called the Big Stick. Now, finally, when it comes to Europe, we, by and large, stay out of European affairs. Uh, we have no real treaties with European countries. Uh, we have a fairly friendly relationship with England, but still it's very we, – we don't have, like, any real alliances. We don't have, like, any military agreements. We do have some trade agreements pretty much with everywhere in Europe. But we have no real, like, alliances or treaties in Europe. And whenever wars happen with Europe, we're pretty happy to stay out of that. However, that is about to change with a little thing called World War I. But World War I is something we're going to talk about for the next test. So this ends all the material you're going to have on test one. Uh, yes, that does it. So thank you so much.